Hello and welcome. You're listening to Bye Bay Plastic, a podcast where we rethink how we can deal with plastic waste in the Bay Area. I am Chris from Hong Kong. I'm Naomi from Japan. And I am Pella from the Netherlands. And we are your hosts from Minerva Schools at KGI, an undergraduate program based in San Francisco. In our three-episode series, we delve into plastic recycling, plastic separating, and plastic upcycling, where we interview experts and present our research in the field. Hello, and welcome to the second episode of Bye Bay Plastics. As always, the podcast will be delivered by Naomi, Paula, and Chris from Minerva. In today's episode, we are looking into separating plastic and other wastes. Separating, or to allocate the right type of waste to the right places, is an essential process before wastes are actually collected and get sent to recycling facilities. Of course, a recycling facility can function better if the right items come onto the right conveyor belt. In the Bay Area, there are three types of bins. The green one is for composting, think food waste or organic materials like wood. The blue bin is for all recyclables like glass, paper, metal, and hard plastics. The rest goes into the black landfill bin. Items like soft plastics or packaging with different materials mixed or stuck together may have to go into this bin. If all items were always put in the right bin in the Bay Area, the amount of waste sent to landfill would have from 20% to only 10% of all waste. And as a side note, the trash bins in San Francisco actually pushes our back to mitigate the amount that goes into the landfill bin by changing the bin sizes. With 64 gallons for the blue recycling bin, 32 for the composting bin, and 16 for the black landfill bins. Then, what exactly goes wrong when we separate our waste? Do we not know what to separate? Are we too lazy to learn? How are Minerva students doing? Do they separate their dorm waste properly? Hi, it's me, Chris again. Like last episode, we went around the residence hall in downtown San Francisco to ask our fellow Minervans some questions. Hypothetical question. If you have a plastic bottle, would you dump it in the bin right in front of you or walk 20 meters to recycle it? I would probably walk 20 meters, but at the same time, I'm probably lying. <laughs> I would walk those 20 meters. Yeah, I would walk 20 meters. 20 meters is like nothing. No, I throw it to the nearest bin. I will dump it in the bin right in front of me. I'm an asshole. Sorry. Last episode, we said the percentage of garbage that is recycled in San Francisco is 80%. If everyone properly separates the garbage, what do you think the percentage will go up to? 80%? I thought 50% was um, 90%. I guess could could maybe even 95%. Like everyone puts it in the right bin. I'd still think it would be like 95%. I guess if we recycled and every home had recycling bins, it could probably go until, I don't know, 90%. I think it'll approach like 95 or something. Third question. Do you think it's hard to separate properly? I think yes, because I heard plastic bottles, we need to remove the plastic lid from it so it's fully recycled. Yeah, I think so. Also because people like don't separate trash in the bins, so it's hard to separate afterwards. And maybe because it's just like a very consuming process. Yeah, I mean, there's not, I mean, usually when you look at bins, there's not exactly like, with a few exceptions, there's just instructions on this is recyclables and this is not, but that requires the user to know what is the recyclables or not. If you have three different bins, 
it's very easy to separate. No, I'm just lazy. Okay. Why do you think other people find it hard? People are also lazy. I don't know, as for me, I just not used to that. I don't have it at home, so I just throw it away, like, wherever. I don't want to think before throwing trash. I just want to throw it away from me. Overall, most of them were surprised that San Francisco's recycling rate is fairly decent at 80%, but they are pessimistic about people properly separating because they're lazy or maybe they don't know what things should go to which bins. What about people living in the Bay Area permanently? If we asked them, would they know how to separate? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the great Where Does It Go quiz. Do our Bay Area participants know how to separate their waste properly? That is yet to be seen. Today we are joined by Professor Woodsbucket, head of the College of Arts and Humanities at Minerva Schools at KGI, Dan Kermy, part of the student coaching and talent development team there, and Red Tevener, member of the class of 2024. So, Professor Woodsbucket, Tell us something, what is your relationship with the Bay Area? Where do you live, what do you do, and what's recycling like in your daily life? Uh, so I live in Oakland, in the East Bay, and um, recycling, we try to recycle what we can, um, and we try to compost as much as possible. So I think our order is compost, recycle, and then trash. Cool, what about you, Dan? Yeah, hey, uh, I live in San Francisco. Um, personally, we practice as best we can. Uh, in accordance with the bins we get from Recology. Um, so yeah. Rhett, what about you? Where I'm from, I'm from Mountain View, um, so South Bay, Silicon Valley. The waste management has done really well. So the rules are, you get one point for a right answer and one point for a correct additional explanation or insight about the answer. Could be anything. We have Chris the judge. Everything clear? Okay, here we go. Your kids love to watch all the Disney princess movies, and you secretly like those movies too. However, the gender norms presented in them are outdated, and you want to get rid of the DVDs, but you don't want anyone else to lay eyes on them. Where do you put them? Do you mean the DVDs or the cases? No, the DVDs. Red. In your neighbor's recycling bin? <laughs> that, that's wrong. <laughs> You're talking about the actual disc. Yes. Just the disc itself the disc. Crack it in half and throw it in the, the garbage bin. That is incorrect. So it's the blue bin, because these can be shredded and they're used in a wide variety of products, like motorcycle helmets. Next question. You bought flowers in plastic pots, but you put the flowers in your gardens for the bees. But what do you do with the flower pot? Because you have no space to keep it. Red. Put it in recycling? <laughs> yeah, um, and it's because it's a polyethylene that can go in recycling. Um, Hard plastics go in recycling. Okay, you forgot your cotton bag when doing groceries and accepted the plastic bag instead. However, you hate plastic, so you want to get rid of this single-use product. Which bin does it go in? Yes, Professor. This is a trick question because we don't have plastic bags, so I would get wow. a paper bag from Trader Joe's. Actually, a good thing to think about is that you can also reuse plastic bags, so if you buy it, like you don't have to throw it out. Imagine you had a terrible day of classes or meetings, and to feel even worse, you ordered the greasiest pizza you can get in the Bay Area, and the box reminds you of your dietary misstep. What do you do with it? <laughs> Professor. Compost. Yes, and why? Because that's what it says on the compost bin. Yeah, because the fat is also composted, and the cardboard is composted, so perfect. If yes, it's, Professor. If it's a waxed 
paper product, then you have an issue and it can't go in compost. So it has to wow. go in the trash because it can't be put in recycling either. That's true. Wow, perfect. Okay, next question. You forgot to opt for mail only for some bank and now your bank sent you 23 credit card offers. However, these envelopes have this silly window of plastic in them. Do you have to remove all of the 23 windows? You have better things to do, right? <laughs> Professor. No. Shred it. Recycle it. Correct answer. Next question. Some people always forget to take bags to the supermarket. They buy new plastic bags every time. Now they are left with an entire closet full of plastic bags. What can they do? Red. Cycle them in mass. <laughs> yes, you can put them up in one bowl, like the size of a basketball, and then Recology can just recycle them. Dan, I want to hear more from you. Next question. You love yogurt. It's the only thing that prevents you from becoming vegan. And you need to open a new bucket every other day. What do you do with your endless stream of empty yogurt buckets? Dan. Uh, the, the top, like tin, I think I would throw that away in the trash, and then the cup I would wash out and recycle. Wow, perfect. And he even mentioned the washing out. That's two points. Yeah, Professor, additional explanation? You could also poke holes in the bottom and put dirt in it and grow things. <gasps> okay, creativity points. I've been watching a lot of Gardener's World. It's like therapy level, even more calming than Great British Bake Off. <gasps> wow, I should watch that. Okay, nice tips here. You really need a new phone, and the old phone just can go to the landfill, right? Or recycle so someone else can use it. Red. You can either take it back to the company, or you have to put it in a specialized electronics uh, recycling, <laughs> depending on the phone. That's correct. Well, those were all the questions. We will announce the winner now. The winner is, with five points, more points than the others together. Professor Woodsparker, the prize will be a lifelong subscription to one of the best recycling facilities in the US on the condition that you live in the Bay Area. <gasps> Whoa. Awesome. <laughs> Professor. He's trying to come up with really creative things you could do with like that closet full of plastic bags. I'm, I think honestly, all you need is a seven-year-old girl who is stuck at home during the pandemic, and then she will take care of Older any cash. of your refuse needs by incorporating it into an art project in my dining room. So nice. Let's now take a step back. Why should we even care so much about separating waste? We would like to invite Felicia from Recology, a waste management company headquartered in San Francisco, to get behind the scenes of waste management and hear about what happens to waste after they are collected. Felicia has been working as the supervisor of the Artists in Residence program, as well as the Educational Tour program at Recology in San Francisco. The Artist in Residence program, which has been around for just over 30 years, gives local artists chosen by application to do a residency at the San Francisco Transfer Station and work four months on-site where they will scavenge for reusable materials to prepare artworks that they will exhibit at the end of the program. While she gives support to artists on the one side, she also takes initiative in providing study tours and off-site presentations for young school groups, college classes, business groups, government delegation, and anyone interested in learning more about the recycling and composting process. 
we'll get straight to Felicia explaining to us what Recology is all about. So Recology is the recycling company for the city of San Francisco. So they collect all of the materials from the blue recycling, green compost, and black landfill bins from homes and businesses throughout the entire city of San Francisco. Recology has been around for quite some time. We just celebrated our 100th anniversary last year, actually, so which is very exciting. A lot of people think that uh, when they think of a recycling company, they might think that we're actually turning those materials into something new. But really what we're doing is we're just collecting all of the, that material from around the city. We bring it to our facility in San Francisco and we sort it all out. And then we send all of that material somewhere else to get to its final resting place. So that might be the landfill. We own lots of our, we own all of our own compost facilities. So anything from the green compost bin goes to one of our facilities and then is broken down into a really nutrient rich uh, soil amendment. Uh, all of our recycle recyclables, we basically collect, sort and bale, and then we ship those to various uh, companies, both domestically and internationally to be made into new materials. So like what happens, for example, to the plastic waste? Um, what kinds of categories are they separated in? Yeah, so the, what plastics are a really interesting material. There are actually hundreds of different types of plastics. They're mostly categorized into uh, one of seven categories, which is that little number uh, that you often see at the bottom of a plastic container called the resin identification code. Um, in San Francisco, we've tried to make it as easy as possible to know what can and can't go in the blue recycling bin. So we say don't pay attention to the number or the type of plastic as long as it's a rigid or hard plastic, meaning it holds its shape. Uh, you know, if you drop it on the ground, it might bounce a little bit or it'll still hold its shape, then you can put that in the recycling bin. Any of those soft, flimsy plastics, things like bubble wrap, plastic bags, the air pouches that you get in, in packaging, uh, that type of stuff would have to go into the landfill bin. Uh, and that's just a really low quality plastic and it's very difficult to recycle. You usually can't turn it into the same item again. Uh, so we just want those hard rigid plastics. Uh, from those rigid plastics, there's uh, even more of a hierarchy. The number ones and the number twos, which are PET and HDPE, those are really the most high quality plastics, the easiest to recycle. They're pretty durable. So when they are recycled, they retain a lot of their same qualities. And so they can actually be made into new products. Um, the other plastics, three through seven, are a little bit harder to recycle, but we still do collect those and bale those. Uh, and those often will get downcycled, which means that they won't turn into the same material. They might turn into something like plastic lumber or fleece clothing, which of course at the end of its life does end up in a landfill. Um, so, you know, recycling plastic is really great. There are some of those plastics that are better than others, but we do encourage people first and foremost to try and reduce the amount of single-use plastics that they use. So San Francisco is known to be one of the most successful cities in recycling, and I believe Recology plays a big role in this success. What do you think is the key contributing factor? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there's a couple, uh, well, I would say maybe two, two main things contribute to 
the success that we've had. So one is uh, education and one is the technologies that we have. Uh, Recology, we have uh, really invested in our technology and infrastructures so that we can collect and process as many different types of materials as possible. So we have at a recycling facility, for example, We have uh, optical sorters, which use uh, light sensors to identify different materials. We have robots that use AI technology and a global database of imagery so that they can identify, again, very specific materials, different types of plastics. Um, We have one of the longest pre-sort lines in the country, which is basically the very first conveyor belt that all of the recycling goes along, passes by 14 different workers who are all tasked with removing things that don't belong in that stream. So they're pulling off anything that could tangle or jam our machinery, um, anything that would would contaminate the recycling at the end. And so getting the recycling really clean is super important in order for it to be turned into a new product. Uh, With plastics especially, um, if they're really dirty with food, for example, they can become very difficult to recycle. So that's where a lot of our education comes in. Um, the city of San Francisco has a team of folks that will actually go out door to door and look at people's bins and knock on doors if they notice the wrong thing in the wrong bin. Uh, We have a pretty robust school education program. And so not only are we trying to teach adults, but we're trying to get students when they're really young to build these habits, these proper sorting habits so that it just becomes second nature to them what goes in what bin. Um, And then throughout all of that, we try and teach people about the importance of reducing and reusing as well, um, because it's really the first the first and best thing that we can do um, to help protect our planet and help protect our communities. I was wondering if there are any obstacles or constraints that are still preventing the college of reaching to say like a hundred percent rate of recycling or, you know, optimizing that process. Yeah, definitely. I think one of the big challenges is those, those soft flimsy plastics, um, that material is really hard to collect. It's hard to process. And like I mentioned before, it's pretty low quality plastic. So, uh, and recycling is really based on a global system. So, you know, even if we were doing everything we could to collect it and process it, and it was really clean, if there's no one that's able to turn it into new products, uh, you know, at scale, then it really makes it hard to get that material recycled. One thing that we have done is we've actually worked and partnered with a lot of businesses to try and help them understand what it really means to have packaging that's recyclable or compostable. Um, So we have businesses that will come out and come on tours and talk to us about how they can make their packaging more sustainable. Uh, We do do a lot of advocacy against single-use plastics. Uh, We recently uh, put a lot of support behind a bill, the Plastics Free Initiative, which is going to go on the November 2022 ballot in San Francisco. And so in that initiative, it actually will hold a lot of the corporations and businesses who are creating those plastics accountable for what happens to them at the end of their life. So like, why is it important that people separate their waste at a house level? Like what goes wrong if they don't? Yeah, good question. So it is really important to separate materials, you know, at home um, or at your office or at your school, because once we 
collect the material from your bin. Maybe just a few things were put in the wrong bin at your house, but then all of your neighbors had just a few things that were in the wrong bin and that adds up really quickly. So we collect about 700 tons of compostable material every day just from San Francisco and about 600 tons of recycling. And so it all gets dumped into these big piles and once it's all together, it then becomes really difficult to remove any contamination. So it really, really helps us out. It makes it much easier, much more efficient uh, when you can sort properly at home. And it also makes it more likely that the compostable material is going to get turned into really healthy compost and those recyclables are actually going to get turned into something new. Thank you, Felicia, for the interview. It does sound like recycling is a much more complicated process than we thought. That's why it's all the more important for us to separate properly. But even if we do our job, how do we motivate other people to do the same? Extensive research has documented why people exhibit green behavior. What motivates people to do things for the benefit of the environment? This can be buying electric cars, spending more for vegetarian food, or installing solar panels. In this section, I'll be talking about factors that can influence our psychology to recycle. If we understand how psychological motivation arises, we can use this information to intervene effectively, thereby increasing recycling rates. We can largely break it down into four levels of analysis, the individual, social, societal, and cultural. To illustrate these factors, let's consider a hypothetical person, Gary. Gary is a junior software engineer at Twitter. He rides his electric scooter to work every day and believes that he can make a difference to save the planet. In this way, he has a strong perceived responsibility for the environment. He believes that through his recycling behavior at home and at the company, he can consistently express his environmentalist identity and values. He also happens to be politically liberal, which fits the demographic categories that correlate with high green behavior. Although he has limited formal education regarding sustainability individually, most of his family and colleagues are knowledgeable about the impact of recycling. So on a social level, the norm to recycle within his family and his social group pushes him to continue doing so. According to literature, social proof is one of the most significant factors that motivates recycling. Hence, combining the individual and social factors form the most immediate influence to an individual's recycling behavior. Zooming out from the individual to the collective, we can also consider the societal and cultural factors. Societal factors refer to the state of recycling of a city or country. This includes citizens' overall awareness, the availability of infrastructure and technology, economic conditions, and how involved the government and non-governmental organizations are in the issue. For Gary, he lives in San Francisco, with robust recycling infrastructure supported by companies like Recology. Most San Franciscans are aware of the environment, and the city government is active in promoting zero waste. As a very developed city, San Francisco offers ideal societal factors for individuals to recycle. Finally, cultural factors refer to the more ambiguous idea of cultural values that likely involve religious values as well. A handy example is Japan, where the dominant social paradigm believes in humans' harmony with nature, rather than dominion over nature. This is supported by religions like Shintoism and Buddhism. Hence, Japan's cultural factor is one reason that is favorable to motivate individuals to recycle. So here, we have broken down the factors into individual, social, societal, and cultural levels, according to the peer-reviewed articles that we have found. One key thing emphasized across literature is that the social level is the most important level in determining a person's recycling behavior. 
Because our evolutionary cognitive limit only allows us to imitate behavior from the people immediately around us. To begin reflecting on your own recycling behavior, try looking at each level one by one, especially your family and close friends. If you're already in a network of enthusiastic recyclers, congratulations! If you're yet to be in one, consider how you can be the one initiating such a culture within your social network. While it is challenging to pinpoint exactly the impact of each factor on your behavior, think about how these factors mutually reinforce each other one way or another along your spectrum of motivation. If you're interested in the detailed table factors and sources we use, you can check out episode notes linked in the description. So now, knowing the factors at different levels, how can we encourage recycling? At Harvard University, a group of students part of the Sewell Sustainability Initiative used the design thinking process to ideate on how bins can be designed in order to encourage recycling behavior. They found that adding the slogan, quote, 10 seconds to sort, 1,000 years to end a landfill, end quote, increased the recycling rates and decreased the amount in the trash bin. The students wanted to use people's loss aversion to emphasize their individual perceived sense of responsibility. Loss aversion is a cognitive bias that people experience losses more intensely than gains. For example, we feel much sadder if we lost $100 than we would be happy if we earned $100. Well, this term usually describes irrational behavior of overweighting losses and ignoring well-calculated risks. In this case, emphasizing the negative consequences and imageries of your trash in the landfill for a thousand years is taking advantage of this cognitive bias to achieve a positive outcome. Similarly, in the University of Pittsburgh, simply adding the word landfill on the trash bin increased recycling rates by 29%, a small tweak that led to considerable improvement. In both cases, the solution was not necessarily an intervention, but what we call a nudge. Its impact tends to be less noticeable and less conscious in order to foster certain behavior. The term was first coined in the book Nudge by Richard Taylor and Cass Sustein, which he defines as a choice architecture that alters people's behavior without stripping away their freedom of choice. For example, the word landfill probably not restrict people's choice from using the trash bin, but it does inform people in such a way that it will change the behavior, which qualifies as a nudge. After researching and reading about similar experiments, we decided to engage in similar ideation process regarding the designs of bins, based on the four factors that Pelle and I identified in the previous section, namely individual, social, societal, and cultural. ID 1. Individual Aspect We noticed a lot of trash bins, but fewer recycling bins on the streets of San Francisco. At the beginning of the episode, we asked whether our peers would walk 20 meters to the nearest recycling bin instead of using the trash bin. However, in reality, 20 meters is a gross understatement, because oftentimes we don't even see one in the middle of downtown. What if every trash bin in the city is paired with a recycling bin? What if every time someone throws something, they can have the conscious choice to do good or do bad? In the same way, this increases the individual's perceived sense of responsibility, that they have the power and choice to recycle and do good. A nuance worth mentioning is that while most of our peers said they would walk the 20 meters, whether it directly translates in real life is questionable due to another cognitive bias called hyperbolic discounting. Hyperbolic discounting is a tendency to be inconsistent in preferences for short versus long-term gain. For example, it's easy for me to say that I want to go for a run this Sunday to keep fit. But when Sunday actually comes, I will probably be unmotivated to run and will rather want to watch Netflix the whole day because I prefer an immediate reward. So in our case, the actual number of people who would walk the 20 meters could even be less than we think, which gives us more reason not to believe in the optimistic self-reporting that people give, 
and avoid hyperbolic discounting in the first place. By matching each trash bin with a recycling bin, people don't even have to make such a decision. Idea 2. Social Aspect What if the bins are transparent? Sometimes when we absentmindedly put a half-drank orange juice bottle in the recycling bin, we might go, oops, for a second, but forget about it because it is in the bin and we cannot see it from the outside. Now, if it's transparent, not only can you see the juice all over the interior, but also the people around you, your friends, your family, and strangers. Everything in the bin is polluted and not recyclable, and everyone knows you're the culprit, squandering all the effort people made before you. This relates back to the idea of social proof, which you might know as the hurt effect or pack mentality, the idea that we behave in certain ways not because we rationally made the decision to do so, but because we emotionally want to be part of a social group and conform to a social norm. Personally, I would love to see experiments investigating this effect on recycling rates. Idea 3. Societal aspect. The more involved the local government and non-profit organizations are engaged in an issue, the more it can encourage citizens to be involved too. Compared to many parts of the world, San Francisco and the Bay Area seem to have good governance and NGO engagement in sustainability. In the quiz earlier, everyone knew about recology, while for Chris living in Hong Kong, few people can name the recycling company or the sustainability NGOs. One small design choice to improve this factor further is to label relevant names on the bins, like the City Environment Department, Recology, and other organizations. This can foster the impression that everyone is in this together, to make a difference and appeal to an individual's sense of not wanting to let other people down. Idea 4. Cultural Aspect The more tailored the message is to culture's norms and values, the more successful it can be in its delivery. This is slightly more challenging to do in a multicultural place like the Bay Area, because people are generally more progressive and have had multiple cultural exposures or influences. In other words, people are less defined by traditional and conservative values. However, we could still appeal to them by differing word choice in different areas of the city. For example, in Chinatown, the catchphrase could be, be in harmony with nature, rather than make a difference for our environment, because we found that Eastern culture emphasizes the blend between human and nature. This is different from the Western anthropocentric view that men should have dominion over nature, as perhaps implied in the slogan, making a difference for our environment. It can also be written in the community's language aside from English, and the same can be done for the Latino community, the Indian community, and other cultural groups. To conclude, nudges are a powerful subset of solutions to consider, because we can implement them easily and inexpensively, and they can be greatly effective in increasing recycling rates. You can start nudging your family members and guests at your household, or even at the school or company that you spend most of your time. But if you don't fancy yourself much as a designer or artist, I think Naomi might have some tips for you too. Yes, you must be wondering, what would I be able to do starting from today? Besides those who are already specialists at recycling, most of you know that recycling is important and you want to separate better, but it's just too difficult to incorporate it in your lifestyle and also to keep up with the habits. Study shows that people have a strong preference towards maintaining their current behavior, so if you currently sort waste into two categories, you don't want to start sorting into three. Study results also tell us that social norms and marketing tactics that incorporate nudging too intensely or too directly to make people behave in a certain way actually discourage people from doing so. So I want to introduce you to some lazy tactics for better recycling that you could try at your home from today. 
Number one, buy groceries in bulk. Whether it's your favorite snack, drinks, fruits, or cereals, buy products that are packed together. Compared to buying individually packed groceries, you can reduce the amount of packaging material that comes with your purchases, your budget, as well as the time you need to allocate for shopping. Number two, create an I think I can recycle this box in your house. Sometimes you encounter cardboard-like packaging, an electronic appliance, or a piece of aluminum that you aren't too sure whether they can be recycled and decide to throw them away. You might put it in the recyclables while it should not be there, which we call wish cycling. Or you do not want to contaminate the recyclables and so just throw it in the landfill bin. By setting up a box for these materials and going through them just once in a month or two, you can take time once a month to look through the sorting instructions so that you do not have to think through the more complex items daily. Number three, stop the junk mails and catalogs that get mailed to your post. While this requires some initial effort to contact the senders and change the postal settings, the effort will bring you a much higher return since you will be free from having to go through a bunch of mails every day. It will also diminish that faint psychological burden you've always felt throwing away papers that you never dare to read. So try any of these tips and you will notice that you're naturally starting to develop better separating and recycling habits because what did I say before? People prefer to maintain and settle with their current behavior. Overwhelmed by how much you can do to contribute to your nearest waste manager? We hope that you have found at least one reason not to 1. Discard your paper cup with the plastic straw still tucked in it or 2. Throw your dirty plastic tray straight into the recycling bin. We'd actually love to see you become a real-life Gary. But you still may be wondering, would my individual effort be of any help? Would I be able to keep up with my separating habits? How could I get my friends and family to pick up the same habits? Remember, to eradicate recyclables that still inevitably get sent to landfills, collective and persistent effort by individuals is key. Power from bottom-up can never be underestimated, both in positive and in negative sense. We have learned from Felicia that wastes that get collected in the neighborhood have to be sent somewhere else to turn them into raw materials and then sent again to be transformed into new products. This means that we have to keep in mind how our slight mistake in separating decisions can lead to major detrimental secondary and tertiary effects in the waste management system. Now you might be starting to imagine, so how do separated wastes actually get turned into something new to be reused? In our next episode, we will move the discussion forward to reusing and upcycling by inviting the Library of Things in the UK and also introducing fun crafts you can do at home with plastics. But until then, bye bay plastics. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, you can leave us a review in the comment section. If you have any questions or thoughts about the episode, you can shoot us an email to the addresses linked in the description. Thank you and bye.